0: and we are now once again at your office like we were for the inaugural episode soon in the future we'll be able to
1: teleport and therefore this process will not be so hard to do
0: meeting up in different cities yeah is that our first topic
1: <laughs> yeah no it's our third <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: We have a bunch of other topics. First off, I would like to rant a little bit about the appointing authorities that appoint and hear challenges against arbitrators in international arbitration.
1: And for the second topic, we, Joel and I will be transporting ourselves to Gothenburg to talk with doctoral candidate Hannes Lenk, who is writing his dissertation at the moment. But specifically, we will be talking to him about Opinion 215 that just came out of the Court of Justice of the European Union regarding the EU's external powers to conclude the EU-Singapore Free Trade Agreement, uh, where the court found that the EU had exclusive competence over most of the trade agreements, or specifically that agreement, and shared competence over non-direct investment and ISDS, or Investor State Dispute Settlement. So there's some interesting factors that come in regarding trade and regarding settlement or investment and how those don't necessarily are those
0: are not necessarily one in the same. Uh, so we will be talking to him. And then finally, it's happy fun time. And we are at your disposal, Brian. What's the happy fun time? We will be talking about... Uh, Generally, about how artificial intelligence
1: is replacing our jobs, or as South Park says, they took our jobs. Um, And then we'll get into um, the machine arbitrator. So, ethical considerations that go into whether a robot or a machine
0: can make these decisions. Is this your way to try to uh, outstage me because I introduced the born arbitration in the last episode? Yeah. Soon it will be fairy dust arbitration. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's go. So, first off, uh, I would like to talk to you about the appointing authorities. And when I say appointing authority or at least in, in the past when I said appointing authority uh, and full disclosure this is sort of semi relevant for my research you have to cut me off if I go for too long because I can talk forever I used to talk about the appointing authority and then I mean specifically the UNCITRAL arbitration rules which as I will get back to is a specific case because the UNCITRAL arbitration rules as you and our listeners would know are made for ad hoc arbitration so they have this appointing authority thing in the rules But other people, when they hear appointing authorities, I think, more generically think of any kind of institution in any kind of arbitral setting that has this sort of function. So I will talk both about the generic sense of the word, but also specifically about the UNCITRAL cases. And in the non uncitral specific context, and so in the generic sense, an appointing authority is basically any kind of institution or, for that matter, person. Who is tasked with making the arbitration work and we have both worked at and talked to the Secretary-General of uh, the Arbitration Institute at the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce which is one of these appointing authorities and in the typical institutional setting you have an institution tasked with making various decisions about how the arbitration should proceed. So this is the very familiar distinction between ad hoc arbitration and institutional arbitration. And these are basically public, right? How they choose. Are
1: are there guidelines that how these institutions choose? Ah.
0: That depends. Published guidelines? uh, Not really, I think. And to a certain extent, that makes sense because they charge the parties and they develop A lot of uh, in-house intelligence on how they do things i'm thinking now specifically about the arbitrator appointments right so they have a lot of insight and so they don't really publish that type of like detailed information but of course they publish generically like how they do things in order to explain to parties and potential parties uh, what they do and how they do it but that's a fine line for them to walk i think what to publish in order to come off as transparent and actually show what they're doing. They kind of function in
1: the vagaries of nationality, competence, right? And then
0: when those things come into perfect alignment, that's who your arbitrator will be. Yeah, exactly. But they also do other things apart from appointing arbitrators, which is, of course, typically in like the -the run-of-the-mill international arbitration, it is the chairperson who's appointed by an institution because typically the parties appoint the two party appointed arbitrators. Right. That's not necessarily the case though because it might also be so that the, the parties don't agree at all so the institution has to appoint the whole tribunal or it might be a sole arbitrator who is also appointed them by the institution. But they also hear challenges against those arbitrators. And those are I think maybe the two main uh, things that they do. But then you have all of these like tiny things that you never learn when you study arbitration because it's frankly too boring and it's also something that you don't really have to study but costs is a big thing advance on costs so based on depending on which institutional rules based on either the the amount in dispute or the hours spent the institution is charged with making sure that the money is being paid and how much that money should be basically And they also act as a sort of third party to ensure that the money is held in a neutral third party place when the parties don't trust each other. And then also settling the accounts at the end of the arbitration. Yeah. If you work at an institution, which we will talk about, I guess, at one point. And uh, I'm speaking for you now, but I think both of us would recommend that to any young arbitration lawyers to spend at least some time at an institution. Most of what you're doing is not the, like appointing uh, high profile arbitrators. It, most of what you're actually doing is extending deadlines on paying advances on costs <laughs> and like looking up bank accounts and That's stuff like true. that. true. When do taxes apply? Yes, exactly. Well, when I think uh, the, the interesting issues arise, however, speaking now as an academic, is in the Uncitral setting where you by design do not have this function. So Arbitration 101, the first thing you say at an arbitration introductory lecture is that this is institutional arbitration, this is ad hoc arbitration, and generally it's smart to go for institutional arbitration. Because then you get a package deal and you have this authority in place and the rules that you use are designed with this in mind. But then the Uncentral arbitration rules are ad hoc arbitration rules. So there is no role for an institution basically in the rules. So the rules are made to be tailor-made by the parties. But then it's of course easy to see that the arbitration procedure as such would not work out at all if you have no third party uh, function involved. If, for example, you don't have a tribunal in place, so you only have two disputing parties in a vacuum, what would happen? The arbitration would not be able to proceed if the parties cannot agree. So... What they introduced cleverly in the first version of the Uncetral Rules from 1976 is this function of the appointing authority. So here comes the specific phrase, the appointing authority, which in essence is a body tasked with making sure that the arbitration does not get stuck. So in the first and most important Example, it is of course then to make sure that there's a tribunal in place.
1: And, but that, I mean, d- isn't it limited to that though? When you say the, tri- the the arbitration doesn't get stuck, if it gets stuck on any other grounds other than tribunal appointments, it's not the appointing authority's
0: responsibility, is it? The challenges. The challenges. As well, yeah. Under the UNS-trial system, uh, if you challenge an arbitrator, it's not the remaining arbitrators that. Determine that challenge. Right, it is the appointing authority. But any
1: other phase of the arbitration down the road, down the road after there is a constitution of a tribunal, that is not the appointing authorities. Yes, correct. You're right. Okay, you're
0: right. So in the unctral rules in the 1976 version, uh, introducing this appointing authority was of course a clever thing to do, uh, because otherwise, ad hoc arbitration wouldn't work. So you have to remember that they made this this stuff up. Basically, it didn't exist before 1976, and the first time it was really tested was in the very, very interesting Iran-United States Claims Tribunal, which every arbitration lawyer is aware of, but no arbitration lawyer almost actually knows a lot about. I do not. But you know it exists. Yes. It still exists, actually. And if you you want to know the background, you should go watch the Academy Award-winning movie Argo about the... uh, Ben Affleck. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's. I'm not going to go into the historical details because I spent 50 pages in my dissertation draft on this so I, I could go on forever. But basically the relationship between Iran and the United States changed uh, in late 1970s in the revolution in Iran. And it culminated a little bit with, with this hostage situation at the American embassy in Tehran. And where one way to solve all of these many different underlying disputes between Iranian and American entities was to set up the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal as a semi-standing arbitration tribunal to handle both claims between the states and claims between private entities from one state against the other state. So in that sense, it was really like the first investor state arbitration, although it's really sui generis. And when they set this up, there were no uh, diplomatic communications between the U.S. and Iran, so they had to go through the Algerian government acting as an intermediate. And they determined, and as far as I have been able to, to find out from archives, they did so, they determined that the UNCTRAL rule should apply. The way they drafted the arbitration agreement, or whatever you should call it, is by the United States Uh, the state department basically sending a bunch of drafts one after the other through the Algerians to the Iranians who then rejected it for various reasons. So they kept on sending drafts and drafts and the United States tried to get a a lot of different established uh, arbitration rules because this was like a couple of years after the UNCTRAL rules. There weren't really any UNCTRAL cases. It was untested. But it seems that the very fact that the UNCTRAL rules are called United Nations commission on international trade blah, blah 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 that they had united nations in the name was acceptable to the iranians so mm-hmm. they they said that we are, we will set up a tribunal they will use the unctral rules as the tribunal itself sees fit to modify blah blah, blah. so the tribunal was set up using the unctral rules although the unctral rules were like 3 years old and made exclusively with commercial contractual arbitrations in mind so It was a really good test, given the fact that the two state parties didn't have any diplomatic relationships, and this sort of new tribunal got the new rules to work with. Throwing it into the deep end, really. Really, and it worked pretty well, uh, as I am arguing in my dissertation, (laughs) soon to be published. (laughs) Soon to be bought. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because Partly because the appointing authority, because there were a lot of issues, of course, in appointing, the nine arbitrators as they have in, in the in the tribunal three Iranian three American and three th- third party arbitrators and both sides kept challenging each others and there were actually one Swedish judge was actually physically beaten up by two Iranian arbitrators or judges uh, at the tribunal there were and there were i mean many many issues uh, involved in the many arbitrations and having the appointing authority uh, which was uh, an ex-judge in The Hague, a Dutch, I think, Supreme Court judge, was like the key thing that made it work. Without that, the, the tribunal would have failed on day two, basically. So it showed the, the brilliance of the drafters of the Uncentral Rules to insert this sort of flexible solution to have yeah. a third party inserted. Uh, well, so basically that's a lot of power, <laughs> both to a point and to hear to challenges. Uh, but it, the, you have a, uh, a catch-22, because if you don't have an appointing authority, then you you don't have anybody to uh, appoint the appointing authority, so to speak. Uh, so the the safety valve in the Uncetral rules, if the parties cannot agree, which they typically cannot on who should be the appointing authority, you get to go to, do you know whom? The PCA? Correct. Do you know specifically... Permanent who? Court of Arbitration? Yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, that's, a, that's not a person. No, it's not a person. It's actually the secretary general of the PCA, formally. Okay. Who I think, I'm probably wrong now, but it, it tends to be, as far as I know, a, a senior Dutch person. maybe. Because they sit in the Hague. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, formally, that person is then, if the parties cannot agree in the non-central arbitration, the secretary general of the PCA gets to de- designate the appointing authority. And this is what I'm interested in, in my research, but I won't be able to address. So I'm, I'm making a general call now to the uh, community of young arbitration researchers. Somebody has to look into this because it's a completely under-researched topic.
1: Before you even go further with that, do you know who the secretary general is of
0: the PCA? I know he's Dutch and I probably couldn't pronounce his name even if I knew it. Hugo Hans Zübles. Okay, that was pretty easy. But this, I find this fascinating
1: because prior to his assuming the position of secretary general of the permanent court of arbitration mr siblets sorry if we butchered your name served as ambassador of the kingdom of netherlands to france monaco and andorra so i guess he is dutch
0: but he's an ambassador this confirms my point You're right actually because my impression from the outside without having done any research or have any kind of inside baseball info is that this is a ribbon cutting guy yeah he, he is a figurehead, an ex-ambassador who is like involved in PCA, external and communication activities. This is similar to the setup that you see at ICSID, where formally sometimes the president of the World Bank is involved, but in practice the president of the World Bank has very little arbitration experience, so it is the secretary general of ICSID specifically. This is beyond a, a, a well-known uh, secret that... I think most people in the arbitration world would know that, in fact, it's the ICSID Secretary General who, for example, hears challenges, even though it's formally signed by the president of the World Bank. Right. I suspect it's the same at the PCA for the same reason that this guy, who seems to be a very senior diplomat, but maybe not an arbitration specialist, is not really in the position to recommend or even appoint appointing authorities. So instead, uh, it's the people working at the PCA Secretariat who do this. And they do so, I think, based on some sort of institutional experience. And I know just like from anecdotal evidence that they appoint, or rather to keep the terminology straight, they designate the appointing authority who then gets to appoint arbitrators and hear challenges against the arbitrators. So it's like one degree removed from actually appointing the arbitrators. Right. But they designate ICJ judges. I know that both the SEC and the ICC and other arbitral institutions act as appointing authority often because of the PCA designation but they also designate physical persons so like other arbitrators who on I would assume uh, on, on, a, on a correct assumption that they these people the arbitrators know the field so they are competent enough to appoint arbitrators that would do the job and have the significant experience and the specific expertise that you need. Does the PCA have a
1: list? You don't know that. Nobody knows, and that's right. my point. But And it always goes to an individual, right? So even though they designate an authority, it's not like the other
0: institutional appointing
1: authorities where it goes to an
0: institution and there's
1: certain... Well, regime.
0: interestingly enough, I think... I think it's the case both at the SEC and the ICC, and I know, of course, that there are other <laughs> institutions out there, but the, the, these are the two that I happen to have experience with. They have their own rules, so they have a separate set of rules for when they act as appointing authority under the UNCITRAL rules. So whenever somebody in a senior position at the ICC, for example, is is designated as the appointing authority, they have an internal procedure for how they do it which allows them to utilize their institutional experience. And it is the same at the SEC. They have the board making that decision, even though it, you know, it might say something else. Technically, it's the the president of the board or the chairperson or whatever they call it. Right. They do it using the secretariat, because that's why, presumably, they are designated, because they do this on an everyday basis. So they have the intelligence but i i don't know your guess is as good as mine when it comes to how it works when you appoint when you designate another arbitrator so if you just designate arbitrator mrs x to appoint a three-person tribunal in a a case right i mean what do they do and what
1: do they do even when they take this designation do they have to sign some sort of confidentiality or I impartiality? No. I mean, they must.
0: But not necessarily to be the appointing authority. I mean, that's, of course, if you're the arbitrator. But if you're tasked with appointing the arbitrators, do you have to... I mean, the SEC does not sign impartiality declarations no. when they take on a case. No, but That would be stupid because they have so many cases. Yeah. They would always, by definition, be conflicted out.
1: Right. So it wouldn't be a conflict of interest, but it would be... I mean, I just can't imagine that they're going to designate guy x and be like here run with this you have no obligation to anybody except your reputation within the pca
0: i don't know but this is once again (laughs) (laughs) we don't we don't really know this and both in appointing and maybe even more so in in hearing challenges against arbitrators that's it's a pretty influential position especially for for one person To do that with no insight, of course, because it's it's confidential in nature. And uh, if if any PCA lawyers listening to this, please, I'd I'd be very uh, interested in doing serious research using your library or your internal documents or whatever you have, because this is something that is still like a a blind spot in, in the arbitration world, I think, because for the institutions, if we go back to the more generic sense of the word. In institutional arbitrations, you have, you tend to have published information in generic form. The more transparent institutions, they they publish statistics and and experiences and best practice and so on. I don't think that's the case with the PCA. And I don't even know how the PCA ended up being the sort of default designator in the Önzertrall rules. I guess they were, I don't know. Neutral enough. They are both a public international law body and a commercial arbitration right. institution at the same time, which is also another under researched topic. Like, what are they?
1: I mean, they're like the most international, supranational
0: court system, right? I mean, they're not. Yeah, but the, yeah, so they, I guess they're a body of public international law in the same sense as I said, because they are created by a treaty and they have member states but they do a lot of like contractual arbitrations and and as you know they go to market themselves at the, all these commercial arbitration conferences as if they were a In commercial institution yeah. like uh, yeah. like the ICC and that my impression is that they have changed that a little bit over the time historically they were more like interstate to this like peace palace right old men doing border disputes and now they have expanded and and realized there's uh, there's a market share to be had if you have a prestigious peace palace to to conduct hearings you could also have bigger commercial cases.
1: I um, I had a case that was Unsetral under the 1976 rules, and we tried to get it, and, and the appointing authority in that situation would have been um, the SEC for, for our specific case, and we tried to get the SEC to administrate the whole case. Um, so we tried to expand the scope of the appointing authority to... And the SEC told us at that time that they had not implemented their specific guidelines that they would then publish and say this is a way that for the SEC to administer a case under the UNSATRAL rules. Um, on I guess it would be agreed on both parties anyway. So whether you had the I guess whether you had the UNCITRAL as appointing uh, SEC as appointing authority or not, the parties agreed to go to the SEC. So
0: I, I don't know if that's they did in your case. I mean. Yeah. So it was a non-issue. But the problem,
1: well, the problem was that the respondent in that case wasn't answering. So the SEC had to make a determination whether they could, on principle, take over as the administrative authority. Mm. And they said now, I mean, there was before that they had passed their guidelines because it just passed in 2016, I think. Yeah. So now if it says UNSITRAL, the SEC has guidelines for you for them to be able to administrate um, an ad hoc
0: dispute. Yeah, which is, once again, back to market share, there are right. so many UNC trial cases, and I think it's, uh, once again, anecdotal evidence, but I think there's an increasing tendency for institutions to administer UNC trial cases, and that's the that's PCA's thing. They have their own arbitration rules, which, as far as I know, are barely used at all when they administer themselves, so not when they act as appointing authority, but when they administer the cases, they do so almost exclusively under the UNC trial rules. They have sort of become the the unsitral institution, although there is no such thing by default. Right.
1: Because, I mean, like you, you have to imagine that they're going to transpose some of their institutional, uh, not biases, but just mechanisms that they are used to, that they this is how they think it works in every institution, which it may not be the case, and then they kind of transpose
0: those onto an unsitral case, so you're getting... Yeah, this is uh, some uh, critical legal scholars, because there, there's a case to be made that the PCA is like using power slowly yeah it's not necessarily a bad thing but i think it, it should be it should be researched
1: yeah definitely all right thanks joel let's move on we have fellow doctor candidate hannes lenk who is here with us today in order to uh shed some light on this american uh, yeah, we, naivete
0: exactly because that's for the record we will be talking to hannes about eu law and it's not for my lack of eu law knowledge that we have invited Hannes. it's purely to educate
1: brian well i, I mean yeah I, I know a lot and it's really just for the listeners to really educate them on what's uh, going on but hannes welcome thank, thank you for coming thank you very much for inviting me no problem. I mean, we have this case that just came out um, and we want to get you uh, all, you know, really tease out all of the issues and information that you can share with us. But uh, before we get into that, are you where are you from originally? Um, originally, I'm, I'm German, um,
2: but I moved over here for um, what, five years ago, I think, to do my Ph.D. And I've done my undergrad in London before that and my master's in the the Netherlands. So I, I traveled around quite a bit. And perhaps that's sort of the reason for for specialising in
0: EU law. I yeah, and also if I got you right, you you got here half an hour ago from Ireland yeah, through yeah, I spent Copenhagen. I spent the right? weekend in Dublin. Yeah. So yeah. I yeah. Right. Okay. I so got we, a, I got around Europe a little bit. This we've weekend. already covered nine <laughs> EU member states
1: <laughs> so it was always an interest for you or um, Sort of. I think uh, during,
2: the, during the undergrad in uh, in London, uh, in, in the education in, in, in the UK, um, EU law takes up quite a bit of space, um, which it doesn't in, in some of the other member states, like for example Sweden in the undergraduate education. Um, I, I then travelled on to do a master's in EU law in uh, the Netherlands, perhaps for the reason that I thought it's um, when it comes to the mobility um, of, of lawyers in Europe um you perhaps best advised to be specialized in international law or, or eu law right um and there that's basically where, where i started focusing into external relations um eu external relations
1: and we're in our last episode actually we talked about phd life and we picked joel's brain about how he got into his phd program and how he found this how did it come about for you well funnily enough
2: it's um uh, I, I really ended up doing a PhD because my uh, my girlfriend's from Sweden and I moved over for her reasons. <laughs> it's the biggest export yes, we have in Sweden. And, um, <laughs> and, and since since I I, I, w- I always wanted to to uh, go into um, the legal profession, I guess. But um, I started talking to people at the university because I have had contacts of contacts, so to say, and and I started talking to them um, and really got into. Uh, I got some information on, on what the PhD is like here in in lot of countries. It's, it's a phenomenal system when it that's comes to what, research. That's what I, I I'm <laughs> I to We're um, also bad mouthing the German system yes. where I was. <laughs> um, yeah, and so it's of was great opportunities, I mean, for, for for becoming more of an expert in a particular field where I'm that I'm interested in. So
1: are you travelling a lot for your PhD or are you just holed up in a library?
2: I'm. I'd say I, I'm probably traveling too much. Um. So for the last, <laughs> last two years, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, For the last two years, I have to um, spend more time in the office, do <laughs> right. the actual writing. Um,
1: Something I also learned is not to ask how far along you are on your PhD. So I know we I
0: know for a fact that because we keep uh, supporting each other mentally, that we're in the same sort of uh, sphere. We, we started at the same time. Let's just leave it at that. And okay. Don't, don't address how far along <laughs> we are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But can I ask, because you are obviously an EU lawyer, uh, but you are writing about investment law and the intersection between EU law and investment law, uh, which which is your identity? Or do you strive to be a sort of bridge between the two spheres of lawyers that tend to not communicate, relatively speaking, uh, so well?
2: Uh, Yes, yes. Ideally, I'd I'd see myself, um, say, in between these two fields, trying trying to communicate between the two fields. when, when I when I did my my master's um, back then uh, the EUs just got the competence for direct investment um, and I was I was writing my master's thesis on this topic because it was most um, hypothetical perhaps there was more flexibility in, in, in presuming what might be might be happening um, and whilst I go go along there's so much stuff happening I mean TTIP started I, I actually I spent some time with the commission as well in DG trade in between there, and that and was just when TTIP negotiations kicked off, and there was very interesting discussions going on there, and the kind of expectations you had at, at TTIP. Um, and then all of a sudden this entire controversy about ISDS, including mm-hmm. an ISDS mechanism in uh, in the TTIP agreement um, uh, kicked off in a number of NGOs and, and sort of discourse. So I think that's perhaps when I thought, it's important that, that you get more information on this. It's more, it's clearer on on what, that is, what this really means and how EU law actually fits into this broader system of international law when it comes to, to investment protection.
1: Before we, and this may be a controversial question so we may edit it out, before we get into this case and before we, without being too political, or maybe you want to be political, do you see this as a campaign by the EU to grow or to kind of seize more control than they may have had in the beginning, or do you see it as, a natural outgrowth, or do you see it as a coincidence?
2: Um, I, that's, that's, a, that's a very difficult question because, um, and, and and Funny, enough, I was talking to a colleague um, from the UK, and uh, and the perspective is that the the, the opinion, for example, uh, confirms that there's very large competences in trade, uh, much larger than there were before the Lisbon Treaty, um, and. Between the coming into force of the Lisbon Treaty, and now we haven't really had have the confirmation of, of how broad the competences really are. Now we know, um, and but that's for trade. Yeah, that's, no, but that's that's, for, that's general general. said treaty making in, in trade and investment, and um, and all of a sudden you have this opinion, and the UK particularly would have said this this opinion is a power grab by the by Brussels, right? And now it's opportunities to quickly get Brexit negotiations going. So it depends on the kind of perspective you want to take on this. Um, yes, there have been growing competences by the EU in the last couple of years. But I would say that if you if you take the kind of political compromise series that the Lisbon Treaty represents, um, I think the decision of the court really demonstrates that there are large large competences and there's, there should be an effective trade investment policy. Now when it comes to investment, unfortunately we haven't had the history. We we haven't had investment agreements before, Um, so we'll see how this develops over the next couple of years. Um, But I wouldn't necessarily be too political when it comes to the effect of the opinion on the future of EU EU investment agreements.
1: Well, let's talk about the elephant in the
0: room. Can you uh, walk us through this opinion and what we've been talking about here? Can Um, we we pause and ask uh, the 1A question, because I realized that I'm probably calling the court something that is not called anymore, right? What is the official <laughs> acronym or word for the court in Luxembourg that is the Supreme Court of EU law?
2: Well, the, it is, it is that's, that's, ne- that's not an easy question to answer. It is, <laughs> it, is, it is now the Court of Justice of the European Union, um, but uh, it basically splits in two parts, whether there's the General Court and the Court of Justice. So if you talk about the Court of Justice that's actually making the decisions, yes, it is, it is the Court of Justice. But if you address the institution more generally, then you would say it's the Court of Justice of the
0: European Union. Okay, but saying the ECJ? Yeah, do, yeah that's, th- that's the, yeah,
2: it, it'd be fine. It's the upper upper, upper house of the court to say it's the European Court of Justice. Okay, so I'm not making a fool out of myself as an arbitration lawyer. Who doesn't know no. EU <laughs> I assure you there are, there are very many EU law scholars um, who, uh, who are confused by this. Pew, okay, thank you. So now, <laughs> moving on, what did the ECJ <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, they, now the Court of Justice, um, or just in just general background, um, there, is, there is a particular procedure in EU law that allows you to submit uh, draft agreements, international agreements that haven't yet been concluded, to the Court of Justice um, for some preliminary assessment. Uh, the idea is that either a member state or any EU institution can ask a question, which usually has to do with the competence, the legal basis or um, the compatibility of a particular agreement with the treaties and the idea is that uh, you can address these sort of um, incompatibilities before the agreement becomes binding an international law because afterwards you will have a mess, right? Uh, if the Supreme Court of Justice decides afterwards that there is an issue with legality and the agreement is already in place then you have this sort of um, controversy between an agreement that's binding international law but not it's illegal under EU law and so on and so forth. So to preempt this, um, there's an opinion that allows you to ask this question before the agreement becomes um, legally binding. Um, Now, in the case of the free trade agreement between the EU and Singapore, um, because it is the first agreement that's actually been concluded under the new competence, under the Lisbon Treaty, the uh, the i think it was the commission actually who, who initiated who sent the request to the court of justice and asked whether or not it could be concluded by the european union alone uh, or whether or not we need the ratification in all 20 well now 28 member
0: states and the european union alone <coughs> means the eu commission as the sort of executive well, it means organ th- of the eu
2: no what w- w- would mean the council
0: um uh, would make the decision who makes
2: it w- would sign um but it would be the Commission who, uh, who proposes whether or not uh, the Council decision should say exclusively by the European Union, or whether it declares the agreement, the mixed agreement that then also uh, requires the signature um, of all uh, 28 member states and the ratification subsequently.
1: But would this Council be signing on to it as a Council, i.e. a representative of the EU, or would it's it be so not as their own representative member states, right?
2: No, no, it's, it would be the European Union. So, um, <clears throat> in terms of, for example, if you have an agreement that is um, signed and ratified only by the European Union, um, then if you if it comes to issues of, of responsibility, it would only be the European Union as an organ, as, as an actor international, who would be bound by the treaty. And how that is um, dealt with on a member state level becomes an internal issue between the European Union and the member states. Uh, but internationally, the treaty party would be
0: only the European. Oh, uh-huh, okay, this I hadn't had actually understood. <coughs> and and then, consequently, of course, also the EU as a respondent in any future dispute over the treaty. Um, For example, an investor-state that, arbitration. That, that would that would at least be say the um, uh,
2: the, the the basic um, position. Now, what the European Union did in in this new generation of trade and investment agreements is that it included and to some certain extent already exists in the Energy Charter Treaty, Um, is this element or this this mechanism that allows the commission uh, to decide who is the respondent. So the commission under the new investment agreement, or trade investment agreement, like um, the agreement with Canada or like the agreement with um, Singapore, Vietnam, and potentially also TTIP, uh, the investor would have to go to the commission first and ask uh, who is the respondent in this particular dispute. Is this the commission? Is it, so is it, is it the European Union who is then represented uh, by the Commission or is it, is
0: it any particular member state? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, then um, the decision rests solely with the Commission, they have the discretion to exactly. determine, as a matter of EU law then, exactly.
2: who is the respondent. But I, I, I presume that the basic position would be, if it's an EU-only agreement, then the basic presi- presumption would be that it is the European Union uh, who then, under the head of this sort of mechanism that has been agreed upon, in the agreement could allocate responsibility or at least the, the role of, of the respondent um, to individual member states if that becomes applicable.
1: Why would they give it to a member state?
2: Well, the mechanism as it is designed um, is that it's actually the member state who is uh, who acted, who afforded the, um, the dispute treatment, so to say, mm. that is uh, the respondent. Unless um, Unless there is a parallel dispute um, dealing with the same kind of issue in the WTO, and there needs to be some coordination and coherence, um, or it's,
0: uh, it, it addresses fundamental issues of, of EU law, for example. Brian, as a frequent counsel to claimants, yeah. investors, all things being equal, would you pick the EU or a EU member state as a respondent if it would? I would actually? definitely
1: take a member state,
0: actually. Why?
1: Be, I feel like the the EU is going to take a completely different position than the member state itself. And I don't, I don't think, I don't even, I, this is why I don't understand, why I asked you the question, why would they assign it down to the member state? Because I feel like they want would want to retain everything in every position, legal position, that would be fundamentally compatible with EU law. And that would be a completely different position than somebody trying to,
0: Deal with an issue under but Spanish But to be law. fair, don't you already have the problem though that if you sue the member state, you'll have the commission mm-hmm. making those exact arguments as a third party, uh, by way of an amicus brief, anyway, so that you just end up having two, in practice, having two respondents.
1: Yes, I, I will see how much weight is given to these amici, amici, as some people say. But I, uh, <clears throat> I mean, a lot of them don't aren't even adopted formally by the respondents they are just taken because the case has nothing to do with eu law in most of the cases that they enter into like in the Vattenfall case where i worked as counsel and they said you know the the stuff that they were talking about was an argument never brought by the respondent so the, and and it was way more aggressive right it's saying that they don't have competence to enter into this agreement so you're working against a totally different technique of a of a respondent i don't know
2: and, and, I mean, there's there's one argument that you could make that there's, there's this particular differentiation between agreements, uh, investment agreements concluded between two member states and between a member state and a third country. Because it's quite clear that when it comes to the representation, to so the external representation of the European Union in matters of, of trade and investment, it should be the, the the European Union who takes the stand. Whereas if you have an internal dispute, then you have, sort to say, EU law on both sides. Um, and which which brings in a completely different, or which brings EU into the equation in a completely different manner. Um, but if you imagine that you're a non-EU, uh, you're non-EU investor, uh, not from a member state, and you bring a dispute against, for example, France or the or the EU, and you have, say you have the decision, they say you can make the decision, um, it obviously becomes becomes interesting to. What what's, what what is it that influences the investor in making that decision? Yeah, I I
0: would guess it's always the, the law of the deepest pocket, right? Which well, it in could, most cases should yes. be the EU. But what if what if the EU
1: said, okay, there's a case between Moldova and Spain, and Germany is going to be the proper respondent? Could they say that?
2: Well, it's unlikely, <laughs> because I mean, the, 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 the the basic the basic presumption is that it's the um, the party that afford the treatment. Right. That is that is the that is um, uh, say how the, how the framework is, is constructed. Yeah. But uh, but what, what, what could happen uh, is, of course, that, um, we haven't seen this in, in, in practice. So we, we haven't seen this, this mechanism actually being exercised. Um, but I believe that there's um, an argument that you could make uh, that the Commission could grab more uh, control than it actually has on the mechanism. So the mechanism, the, the basic position is that whoever afforded the treatment is the responsible party or is the respondent party. Uh, but in my opinion, it might, it might, there's room, there's flexibility in this mechanism that the Commission could say that anything that affects uh, the, the um, uh, harmonious interpretation of EU law or that affects the coherence in, in the application of EU law and the agreement um, might be taken over by the Commission instead. So you might, you find, you might find yourself more frequently uh, pleading against the Commission um, than you would expect.
0: It's very hard to construct a scenario or a measure that an EU member state could enact that has no connection to EU law. I guess there are hypotheticals, but with the Creative Commission, you could argue that almost any measure enacted by a member state exactly. is tied into a union. And, and they're, the
2: argument, they're bringing the argument, um, and this is, a, this is a purely academic argument, I'd say, at the moment, um, which is uh, the idea of normative control, uh, where you say that the way that the system in the European Union works, um, there is an element of normative control where member states act, but they are actually they don't have any flexibility. They are, they, they, they are the ones who act, but they really only do that because EU law demands them to do it. Right. And to what extent that will have an, in, an impact, or an influence on the allocation, uh, on the attribution of responsibility or the allocation of the respondent role uh, isn't, isn't quite clear at the moment. There, there are, um, uh, to say the least, there are very dividing opinions on, on this issue.
1: But uh, to go back to this specific case, they said that there were a bunch of competences that were out exclusive competences of the EU. What did they say was the shared competence that they really hinged this case on?
2: Um, and that is very interesting because um, they, they really focus, I mean, and it, it's no surprise really, because if you look at the, at the common commercial uh, policy, which is the foreign trade and investment competence of the European Union, um, it says explicitly foreign direct investment. Um, and there have been certain arguments have been advanced um, that uh, portfolio investment should also be included. Um, but um, there's never been actually a, s- a serious expectation that that would be the case. Um, and so it's unsurprising, that the court is saying, um, well look, foreign direct investment is exclusive competence, it's a common commercial policy, but portfolio investment is not. It's a shared competence between the Member state and the European Union. The, the Advocate General who gave an opinion beforehand, uh, which is basically who, who assists the court in decision-making, um, said that while well, the dispute settlement mechanism ancillary to the substantive protection. So if you have foreign direct investment, then ISDS is also exclusive competence in as far as it concerns foreign direct investment. Um, and since portfolio investment is a shared competence, then ISDS in as far as it concerns portfolio investment is also shared competence. That would be the basic idea. Uh, what the court surprisingly did was saying that it, when it comes to substantive protection, you have this clear divide between portfolio and foreign direct investment but when it comes to isds um, then all of a sudden it it deprives domestic uh domestic courts in the member states from hearing the disputes and that itself requires a consent of the member states so it falls under an area of shared competence so in its isds in its entirety irrespective of whether it concerns foreign direct investment um, or portfolio investment is excluded so the big i think the big two big points that you would take from the from the opinion when it comes to, uh, to investment protection is that the substantive standards are clearly divided. You have exclusive competence for indirect investment uh, and shared competence for portfolio investment, but all of ISDS is excluded from, from
0: exclusive competence. As long as it removes matters from domestic courts, right? I mean, in theory, you could be very creative in drafting well, there, there has an been arbitration some, clause, um, you know, in reintroducing uh, exhaustion of local remedies, or yeah,
2: it's, it's funny you say that because because there has been a, um, I mean, there has been a lot of discussion. Um, the internet has been glowing up basically on on <laughs> comments. A on very commons. limited, uh, well, part of the internet, though. Let's be fair. Well, <laughs> I right. was going to say <laughs> <fair enough>. Kim <laughs> Kardashian's heist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay, right. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's there have been many many different opinions on the opinion, right? Uh, both from uh, from from academics and from uh, from legal practitioners in the area, and um, with very different conclusions. Um, and there has been a discussion on whether or not, for example, the exhaustion of local remedies would uh, would circumvent the problem. Um,
0: and not everyone agrees that it would. Um, you mean, also have the practical problem of having a third state agree yes. to exhaustion of local remedies because, yeah. in an arbitration clause yes. in
2: a treaty. Yes, yes. Um, but that question, I think the question becomes um, to what extent you do not withdraw that dispute from the domestic courts, because yes, they have a say, but if you still can submit the case
0: afterwards to ISDS, um, then you still withdraw. Uh, so so what court. now then, is is it likely that it's back to the drawing board for the commission so that they can... Draft the treaty in a way that, as much as possible, falls within exclusive competence, or is it the EU Singapore Treaty as it stands now will we go through ratification and all that that would entail with domestic parliaments, etc.? The, com-
2: the, the Commission isn't quite clear on that, and the, it has been explicit, uh, the Commission has been explicit um, that they will need some time in order to, uh, to assess what this opinion means for the EU Singapore FTA. Um, but also more generally for future treaties, like, for example, TTIP on CETA. Um, and what, I mean, there's a general problem we have with the EU-Singapore FTA, which is a little bit embarrassing because the Commission has been dragging out the process of negotiation for a very long time. So dragging it down even longer is politically very not not very feasible. Um, It's also my understanding that that the ISDS mechanism in EU-Singapore relations isn't actually that important. Uh, So you might see the EU-Singapore FTA being concluded as a mixed agreement without much controversy. Um, The only problem that you currently have, obviously, is that you have a a very traditional uh, investor-state arbitration mechanism in the agreement um, that you no longer find in the, uh, the newer agreements where you have the investment court system, which...
0: Yeah. Okay. So it would set a precedent. It's yeah. Uh, it's w- which is not really desirable yeah. because the EU wants to get rid of or exactly. so I th- I think modify. I, th- or I think I think
2: we we're sort of out of the um, we we're, we're sort of out of the legal discussion uh, and back into political waters and it very much depends on the commitment of the member states to drag this agreement over the finishing line so mm-hmm. to say, um, but we might see already with this agreement, but perhaps in uh, particular with future agreements um, that you see a split. So you will, you will see an agreement that focuses on trade, um, and we take out uh, investment protection um, and ISDS, and we conclude a separate agreement on, on that. Right,
1: would there be a resurgence, and this is my own naivete on the subject, would there be a resurgence of like diplomatic protection cases where the state would take over an individual's case, and then have a state-to-state dispute that way?
2: I, I, should, I should have said that earlier, but when it comes to state-to-state dispute settlement, um, for investment protection, yeah. Um, the court has had no issue with the competence. Um, to the extent that state-to-state dispute settlement, as far as it concerns direct investment, um, is exclusive competence. It's it, so the state-to-state dispute resolution is ancillary to, um, to the substantive exclusive competence. I us say, and and the same accounts for portfolio investment and shared competence. I'll say, if it is, as Purely hypothetical, but if it is correct that we'll see a problem with ISDS, you might see agreements um, that are concluded on investment protection and dispute settlement uh, that only feature uh, state-to-state dispute settlement. It, it's it's possible. It would be politically the easiest, the more the easiest course. Right.
0: Um, and probably the least popular for investors, for among investors. And that's that's the question: whether or not that would be attractive. I have a, an ancillary question, a, pr- a pretty fundamental one, but still basic, and I've tried to explain to my older uh, investment arbitration colleagues who are less uh, versed in EU law than those of us who had to take EU law in law school. And I, I don't think I have made it through, so it would be interesting to hear your take. And this is actually a good example. So that now the, the court had to interpret foreign direct investment. That's the, literally, that's the phrase in the Lisbon Treaty. What is foreign direct investment? And an investment arbitration, an arbitrator, trained in public international law, if this were a tribunal rather than the EU court, would of course approach this question using the Vienna Convention. It's an international court and we're interpreting a phrase in a treaty. But the EU court does not use the Vienna Convention on the law of treaties and does not interpret what is admittedly a treaty between states using what is the customary Law when it comes to interpreting treaties, i.e., the the Vienna Convention. Why doesn't the EU Court interpret the EU treaties using the Vienna Convention, like any other international tribunal does? Well, um, so
2: I think I think that the I think the answer to this needs to be very nuanced. Um, because on on the one hand, it's true that uh, that the um, interpretive methods that the Court of Justice adopts um, vis-à-vis the EU treaties, uh, it's not the Vienna Convention. Um, and it's perhaps not the same that an international tribunal would, would take on EU agreements. Um, the, e- the court has, however, um, uh, acknowledged that the EU is bound by um, customary international law um, to the extent that this falls under, under the implementation and development of, of international trade law, I think. Some, something along those lines. That is in it's uh, in the it's it sort of it's interpretation of one of the objectives that guides EU external action, um, and this has happened uh, post Lisbon, so after the Lisbon Treaty came into force, uh, and, and it clearly applies to the new trade um, trade investment competence. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that they are ignoring customer international law, but obviously their approach isn't the same that you would expect, or, or the reasoning is definitely not the same that you would see from the international, uh, international Tribunal or, or International Court. So what, how
1: does this look for an investor entering this new landscape of... If, if, if the EU were to take over and, you know, it became EU with non-EU member states as, you know, signing these treaties, how would it look for an investor? Would there be higher protection, do you think, or lower protection? Would the protection not change at all? It would just be the more harmonious? What, what land... Like, what environment... Or I, what I'm trying to say is like, is there any substantive implication of doing this, or is it just figuring out the competence yeah. within the EU? But the investor will have the same rights in the end anyway. Mm.
2: When well, when it comes to to the substantive investment protection, um, there's a general understanding that this seems to that, that the new agreements impose um, a higher level of, I would say, a higher level of protection, but they are more updated. Um, so, they take into account um, uh, some of the past cases that cases have been more, um, more, more controversially debated. Um, so, there's an update on the FET clause, for example, to um, uh, have more uh, definition on, on indirect
1: uh, expropriation. Um, yeah, those, those sort of things. So, should, I mean, shouldn't we not embrace this then? And be like, uh, like you said, these things need to be updated. Yes. people are arguing over the same things in all these cases over and over and over again based off vagueness that has been for 20 40 60 years why don't we say okay like everybody terminate and let's start over
2: well because I mean the the agreement with Canada for example it's a, it's a perfect example um, it was about to um, to be signed um, but the commission the commission from the start has looked at the agreement like it's an exclusive agreement um, and not really consulted with um, national parliaments, not really involved in the process. And has always talked about it in terms of um, this is an EU only competence. Um, a couple of weeks before signing the agreement, the date was already set. The Commission uh, proposed the the de- to the Council the decision of concluding the agreement as a mixed agreement, which means that all member states need to sign it. Um, And all members did agree to that. But in Belgium, you have a very complex parliamentary system. And one of the regional fractions of this parliament has um, not granted the authority or the authorization to the national parliament to sign the agreement. So Belgium couldn't sign the agreement. Um, And there was was a lot of negotiation going on uh, between, two or three days, um, uh, and they came up with a compromise that allows, or that, that guarantees to the Belgian parliament that it will um, send a request to the Court of Justice um, to assess the compatibility of this ISDS mechanism. And the root of all this um, opposition, if you want, was exactly the ICS mechanism. So we, we do not want to have ISDS, or um, from a political point of view, it's not feasible to uh, say yes to an agreement that has ISDS because there's just too much public opposition to it. This is—I mean, this is one of the—I mean, the, the politics become very complicated if you have to involve. I'm shooting for my hip here. I'm not quite sure, but I think it's some something, thirty-two or thirty-six different parliaments. Yeah, like I read uh, thirty-eight. Oh, and thirty-eight. They're yeah. actually involved. And I thought that, that was
0: a typo. they should yeah. be twenty-eight <laughs> because of <laughs> the twenty-eight member states. It's all the there's ten regional yeah. parliaments on and, top of that. And, oh and wow. that
2: becomes—and it's so—it's so it's, it's, we're not only talking about two layers between the domestic say parliament or courts and the EU court and parliaments you have also this like regional layer underneath and, and all that when it comes to the, the politics of it it makes it very very
0: complicated too damn complicated is the answer a, to the question why don't we just when <laughs> redo it if you, if you look at this as opinion
2: for trade it's it's more than, I, don't want, I, don't, I don't want to give any normative indications here but uh, it's great because the future of EU trade agreements basically secured. It's, it, it's gonna become much more effective because you have a much broader scope of trade agreement that you can negotiate exclusively. You don't, you, you should probably involve domestic parliaments anyways, but you don't need their approval in the end. It's much faster. Um, but as soon as you include in portfolio investment or ISDS, um, you, you, you will subject that same agreement to so much political opposition and you will probably stay at
0: Another minor thing to answer your question, Brian, I'm jumping in, in, in Hannes' shoes uh, as to, you know, whether it matters who has the competence. Well I asked this question to Colin Brown is his name, right? The yes. the Scottish man who mm. who works with the EU Commission as some sort of head head lawyer and has had the job of trying to explain and defend EU investment mm. arbitration policy to all of these arbitration practitioners that I've been going to conferences with um, and he answered my question uh, in a vague way. Uh, and the question is this, how do you enforce against the EU Commission? Assume that the EU loses an arbitration and does not pay up. And his answer was, of course, you: one will never lose an arbitration and two will always pay up. <laughs> but still assume, because as you know from personal experience, uh, the enforcement battle might be going on for a long time if you have a respondent's date but if it's the EU commission or then technically the European Union as the respondents that, that doesn't pay up where do- I mean, especially when they invoke EU law as the reason why they can't enforce. Exactly. <laughs> do, do they have assets abroad? Do they? What kind of immunity uh, are they entitled to, as opposed to state? It opens up a whole avenue of like potential enforcement right. issues that I don't. Think... And then
1: imagine if they take it over, and then they say, "Well, the party that is responsible, i.e., the specific member state, has to pay from their bank accounts." <laughs> but sorry, we lost. But now you have to pay. Type of thing
0: might be it's a minor question but it, and but it could be a live one if if the eu were to become the standard respondent that's yeah that's a great point master thesis topic yes right <laughs> hint 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 or postal perhaps. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> sounds like there's more to be read up on well thank you for coming down and i appreciate uh you can tell by our silence and our finger on chin expressions <laughs> that we were um very impressed and uh, humbled. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on. So what we are going to talk about in this third and final segment is the happy fun topic insert jingle to be made by our new intern <laughs> to be hired after funding. Um, so this this came up in a panel, and I just kind of ran with it because I'm, also, I'm always interested in what's happening in the future. Me and Joel, actually, side note, got into an argument on the new seven planets that were discovered by NASA, and Joel took the approach that it was totally irrelevant since we should live in the now, et cetera, et cetera, and I was titillated by the fact that something like this could happen in our near future. So, Joel, let me, riddle me this. Um, we basically, I mean, there's... You make me sound like Donald Trump, like... <laughs> I don't care about the Paris Agreement. (laughs) I'll be dead in 50 years. (laughs) Environment, what? Uh, So basically, I mean, and kind of this is something that's come up a lot in the U.S. because we're talking about people wanting to be employed and keep their jobs and um, immigrants are taking our jobs. And then the whole counter argument to that is immigrants aren't taking your jobs. It's computers that are going to be taking your jobs. It's robots that are going to be taking your jobs. And so someone brought this and transposed this into the uh, legal setting. First, I'll talk about that in the legal setting, and then we'll kind of hone it in in the arbitration context. But there's a lot of computer programs and artificial intelligence that have surfaced, and a lot of companies that are in R&D phases of trying to produce some programs that are going to replace a lot of junior associate work. For example... Um, You can have this Ross company has created a bot, basically, that can conduct legal research for you. Um, We At our firm, we subscribe to Investor State Law Guide, for example, and that has really taken the legwork out of a lot of legal research. You have something where you just search for search terms, and if you go through an investor state context where you're working with the same legal standards over and over and over again, it becomes a cookie-cutter approach of just... Same standard, let's just find those cases, put them in, and use the cases that are broad and use the cases that are narrow. And it comes out on your search as just like a word tree of this. If you think, if you wanted a narrow definition, here are 10 cases. And then these cases found for, these cases found against. And it kind of takes a lot of the legwork out of your legal I didn't research. Know this. You didn't know this? No. Yeah. Well, it's,
0: you, should, you should have told us.
1: And it's funny because you see with your counterparties that they were I mean, they're looking at the same tree that you're looking at because you're like you see this really obscure case and you're like, oh, that's great. We can add in, you know, not one of the, you know, normal players, Amco, EDF, you know, these normal players. And you have a Gavazzi case and you're just like, oh, that's great. Good use of that Gavazzi case. And then you realize <laughs> that it's right in the tree where they were looking um, so you have these bots that are coming up and there's and it has come up a lot in um, just well in making claims, for example. So there's something in the UK called do not And what they can do is you type in all your information and this is kind of an easy way to look at this issue, right You type in all your information and they they work specifically with, Appealing parking tickets or delayed flights, like very simple stuff. Consumer. Exactly. You put in your quick information, they spit out a form claim that you sent to the court, which is all like the bare minimum that you need to make the claim. And then it kind of like, the, the court, in, that, in those very simple cases, like appealing a parking ticket, they'll make a decision based off that. So you don't even need to hire a lawyer to do that. You don't even need to do a lot yourself. You just go online, type in your information, and out pops
0: your claim. How how smart do you have to be, do you think, in order to fill that out? Do, can you do it even if you're s- Super stupid. For the parking ticket one, I think it's pretty easy. It's when was your parking
1: ticket? What is your, like, type in 500 words why you don't think you should pay the parking ticket
0: or whatever. And it's smart enough to to convert that into what, like, resembles a legal argument. Yeah, well,
1: exactly. So they'll basically say, under this provision of the law, you know what I mean? They'll do that legwork for you. And then basically what it goes down to are the facts and circumstances of each case. And then it'll have a paragraph that is basically Joe Schmoe's language and um and then they'll make a decision on that um but it's come up in even um settlement uh a settlement context um there's a bot called the visor and i'm probably pronouncing that wrong but they handle divorce cases and landlord tenant cases so again you're working with a little bit of cookie cutter uh, type of cases, where in, the, in California, for example, everything is irreconcilable differences, because everyone in Hollywood needs one way to get out, because you need a divorce for cause. So imagine if you just have to invoke irreconcilable differences, you type in your 500 words or less, what was the problem, and then you have a judge decide on, and you get basically abandon all lawyers and legal research. And There's a, another program called Beagle that does contract analysis. Um, and if you pair that with another issue to look at is the predicting it can predict outcomes. Uh, so there's a bot that can kind of predict outcomes of your dispute. Um, so if you put a contract analysis bot with a predicting outcomes bot, that you can basically say, this is what happened in our case. Here's our contract. Do we have a case? Um, and if you think about um, how that would take away the I can only imagine, biased pitching that goes on in a pitch, which is, you have a great case. Um, Pay me some money. We're going to work. (laughs) Right. Uh, We've done a lot of research. uh, We figured it out. And if you just tell a client that they can go through these bots and say, you have a case, you don't have a case, they'll give you a percentage chance of winning the case. Um, I think it's something that could take a lot of work away from, from a law firm. I mean, then the law firm would really be the only going in and arguing your case.
0: Yeah, and then, uh, as we talked about with third-party funding and, like, law and economics, uh, uh, ideally it would remove a lot of bad cases and just allow the the good cases, uh, if, if
1: there is such a thing, to, exactly. to move on. Exactly. And then, I mean, you could even have... You need, a, you need a 30% chance of winning from this bot in order to bring a claim in this court. I mean, you know, there's so many ways that this could be a slippery slope. Um, so then we go to the machine arbitrator. Okay, so now you have kind of the machines going in and legal research and kind of analyzing the case, but now you have a machine that's going to decide your case. Um, And that kind of strikes a lot of chords with a lot of people. Um, If you think about the agreement between the parties, so let's say we just have a robot come in and then you have these existing agreements between the parties, there's a bit of uncertainty whether submitting, having your... Arbitrator be a machine. Arbitrator would be a violation of the party's agreement. Um, the parties agreed to submit the case to one to three arbitrators. Arbitrator is undefined. Um, would that be a violation of the agreement? The European Parliament is passing a law soon, I believe, that is going to extend legal status to robots. Um, so you have, so they become basically. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> so you basically uh, have an electronic person is basically what that kind of becomes. It's There's natural person, legal person, then electronic person would be like the third category. Um, so technically it wouldn't violate the arbitration agreement in that sense.
0: Um, but are we even there now in, in the sense that this would be a live issue tomorrow in an arbitration that you would appoint? I don't think they have, I don't think it?
1: we have the AI. I think what yeah. they said is that the AI would catch up to the human ability to analyze facts and law in like 2020. Uh, that it would start being, like you would oh, yeah. start getting into R&D for it. Yeah. Some people say it's about 20 years away. So I would say between 5 and 20 years, we're, we're going to be seeing something come up, whether parties agree to extend it to it or not. Yeah. But it'd be funny to see arbitration agreements now become submit one to three human arbitrators as like a necessary. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: and then create another dispute in the dispute as to whether Mr. X is actually is human. He's actually human. <laughs> He's like, I am a
1: human. Uh, that was Mr. X, the robot. <clears throat> um, so, and it's been kind of tested with some arbitration acts, uh, where Well, some arbitration acts already define it as a person. So like the Peruvian, Colombian, there was a couple of other South American countries that had arbitration acts that specifically said, that use the word person so that you kind of eliminate that ability. Um, so what are the positives and negatives? Positives, that you could say, is that it eliminates bias. So it eliminates any cognitive bias, any irrational empathy that could come out of an arbitrator, any... Um, ability to be persuaded by things that are outside of the dispute like political issues or personal professional pressures. so you have a, a robot who does not care what anyone else thinks or doesn't care how you feel. so it eliminates those bias. Um, it will but then on the other side of that you're not able can a robot be able to tell okay a witness is lying based off what the program hears? Um, can it pick up the nuance in an arbitration in a, a legal argument? Um, so that kind of has like a, a back and forth. Um, can it understand legal cultures? Can it understand? Can it understand the political impacts that sometimes you cannot have every arbitration be in a bubble that this could have a domino effect or create precedent that you don't want to create? Um, is can it? Should we even start doing this before these type of things um, should be figured out? Um, and then if you have an award that is rendered by an, a robot, then you have, will that be enforceable? Um, how could you refuse enforcement by an arbitrator raised by a robot? If you go through the prongs of how to set aside an award, two things come up that could be the composition of the tribunal was improper. And if you figure out that the arbitration agreement was proper and it's an electronic person, then... That could be fine, and then you have public policy, which would be the next one. Um, so you kind of there is a, a bit of a chance to check and balance um, if a robot made
0: the right decision. <laughs> and presumably, there's going to be a time and like an in between time when this is being tested legally. So it has to be, yeah, exactly. Know. I mean, he, and not, he, not only in the in the like hardware sense, but also in the legal sense. So the first few times uh, an award made by a robot, that's it's, I can't even say the word because it sounds so far in the future. To you, this is bizarre. To me, this is within our
1: reach. (laughs) I find this to be
0: exciting. That's what I'm saying. Cheery California. (laughs) You never give up. But with the first time somebody tries to enforce an award, I mean, the first court to grapple with this has an interesting task ahead. But another thing, another on the con side, uh, speaking strictly from a personal perspective, is that it takes the fun out of arbitration, or at least the fun out of arbitrator appointments. I mean, and the sport in trying to to guess and and calculate who should we have here given the subject matter and and the the legal matter and the timing and, you know, what will person X think about this based on this? And that's that's a pretty big part of the profession, I think.
1: What if appointing authority was a algorithm you put in you sign up for a case you register your case and out pops an arbitrator because they'll submit their availability they'll submit their competences and then
0: they kind of like set it up that's did you make this up yourself just now yeah okay you shouldn't write an article you can call me a genius yeah (laughs) because that that would be amazing actually because those types of decisions and in appointing arbitrators are more well, not binary, but they are not as sensitive and does not they do not involve as much reasoning and like soft skills as the things you just mentioned no. where you have to like determine whether a witness is lying. If you have all the like what could it be, fifty different criteria that go into that kind of decision, if you could have them all taken into account by an algorithm, that would be pretty awesome.
1: Sounds pretty Yeah. And and then you kind of and everyone's gonna freak out because if you say like we're gonna take out the ability of this choice or if all arbitrators are now chosen by algorithms you know no one's going to release their party appointed arbitrator ability the problem is taking yourself out of the head of a council you have to you have to realize on its face that every single choice you make in an arbitration or litigation is a tactical step and a strategic one so if you're saying that this that giving it up to a machine is wrong, that's because you don't want to use your own tactics and advantages that you can find to win your case. Yeah. If we're trying to pursue justice in the absolute value term of that word, then it
0: shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Again, theoretical. That's a general problem in arbitration, I think, that the, the people who know uh, the best are the people in the trenches, but they are also the ones with like vested interests. Exactly. So reform has to be made both with... like academics or people who aren't necessarily like vested yeah. in, in, in the business but also uh, together of course with the people who actually uh, practice arbitration law. Right so before you
1: jump off a moon Joel because I know we're, <laughs> you know we're about to populate the moon before you jump off the moon I would say I only see AI coming in from the very beginning of what a lawyer can do yeah so the legal research kind of analyzing right. the facts, pitching cases, the the ability to win, all that stuff I see possible, very possible, at least within the next 10 years. At, yeah.
0: At, at, yeah, at least within the next 10 years. When we will still be young-ish, you and I. So it's not that far away. Yeah, but they won't take our jobs, because <laughs> that's a junior lawyer's <laughs> job in the next 10 years. Uh, I, I read, and doing some minor research for this, That uh, a few academics in the United States—I can't remember which university—they made a bot that could predict Supreme Court uh, decisions with like seventy percent accuracy. Yeah, and they seventy percent is very, very good. Do you know how they know that seventy percent being able to determine with seventy percent accuracy? How how they know that's good? How? Because there is such a thing as Supreme Court fantasy, Supreme Court like fantasy football. So, what there's a... this? <laughs> so there's a community with thousands of lawyers who bet on not only the outcomes in the cases, but also like which judge will dissent and on what ground and like what will the lower court say. And real money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real money. You win prices. <laughs> and the elite people who lead these fantasy leagues, because they have many leagues. Right. So the top people consistently, they are around 75% in their predictability. So having software doing it seventy percent is very good. So they had to compare with the best fantasy Supreme Court players.
1: Wow, <laughs>
0: I'm speechless
1: for the first time in twenty five years because <laughs> I couldn't speak for the first time. Though. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, that's, I mean, yeah, but seventy percent is pretty good. Yeah, especially in such a strange legal system. I'm sorry, I'm having, I'm having trouble. Continuing my train of thought because I'm thinking what my fantasy team name would be. <laughs> I'm like going through the justices in and like, making like a good a pun. pun. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. <laughs> can't find one. Yeah. Pause. Yeah. <laughs> it would be R B G, but like the initials, but just they would be. Yeah, and up. notorious R B G. Notorious R B G. It's taking, twelve years really. yeah. yeah. Clarence. <laughs> oh, Matt. No, I can't find it. We'll figure it out. Send in, send in some suggestions of your, of your Supreme Court. Team name,
0: <clears throat> Joel's thinking about it right now. Ah, okay. <laughs> it's like too exciting to yeah, be able to like exactly. settle on one. My... Crossed circuits. Bit...
1: It's I mean, or you can employ the Spanish method. Did you know this that the World Cup winner for in Spain is decided by an octopus? Sport? I think it's in Germany. Where's it in Spain? There's one. There's a different one in Germany. They have another animal. I think, but in Spain, it's an octopus. Okay, that might be. Or true. maybe the octopus is in Germany, but I thought his name was Hector. So I think it. Was, <laughs> I think it might be in Spain, but uh, no, I think the the thing. If you go back to like the nineteen fifties and you say that um, assembly lines will be automated, people would throw their hands in the air and be like, "This is Mars being populated. I don't believe it." And I don't think we can because we're not IT people or tech people or um, Nikola Tesla. We can't like realize the possibility or the realm of innovation because it's not within our brain capacity just
0: now. Yeah, that's it. but still we grew up without the internet and yeah. I mean, now we have iPhones so you still have a basic like a ballpark appreciation of, of how fast isn't there a law for this, not an actual law but like a physics law that the computing power doubles with like 18 months intervals or something like that. Yeah, it's something like that. If you just add that up of course and that, that means that in 10 years, I can't count, but the, the computer power would be much, much, much more powerful yeah. exponentially than it is right now. So anything is possible. So we
1: see it now and be like, oh, a, a computer doing research, that's impossible. Yeah. Or it's like, oh, there's probably going to be some human error in there. There's human error, like there's basic human error doing research in general. But I don't think we're just able to grasp how quickly this is going to come into... It's going to materialize. You're probably right. You've it, been warned, guys. <laughs> Find another job. <laughs> but but I, this this must be like the last ship to sink. I mean, our profession is very much. I mean, I I just love walking to work without anything in my hands because mm-hmm. the only thing I need to do is like sit at my computer and use my brain. Mm. And so to think that that is getting chipped away. Yeah, we're automation. really the last ones to be automated and replaced by technology. Yeah, I so, mean, so doctors contain- are. Off before we are. Yeah, they're already doctor apps. And they're doing full procedures robotically. My uncle was in a procedure where the main guy, who would, it was a very complicated procedure, and he was in Italy. And so he controlled a robot from Italy, the robot hands, and did the procedure under the supervision of someone live who was there. Yeah. But the whole technique had to be done via this robot. I, uh, I already feel old. <laughs> like really old. Just put me in a coffin, <laughs> ship yeah. me off to sea, burn me on fire because I'm not. I'm not here for it. <laughs>